Welcome to season six of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents and therapists. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a group practice owner, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm her daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different topic that is relevant to your family and your life as a parent. And we'll also interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting and informational resource for busy parents. We're also offering the perspective of a teen. So tune in every Wednesday. Crushed it. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan, and you are here for season six first episode of the season. We are so excited to be back. We have over a hundred episodes at this point of One Day You'll Thank Me. And even though I know y'all love some Anna, she is not here with us today because she's at school. And I'm usually not a huge fan of her being involved in episodes that talk a lot about sort of the intense aspects of divorce. I know longtime listeners know that Anna is a child with divorced parents. And I just like to be respectful on you know, emotional boundaries for her. So she is sitting this one out. Hopefully she's sitting in math class now doing something productive. But I want to take a minute and introduce our guest expert today because I'm so pleased to have her. I've been admiring her online because she has a fantastic social media and I'm on Instagram. And so that's where I found her. And she has these informational videos and she is a has a very vivacious personality and really conveys information in an interesting and concise way. So that's how I found her. And then I had to be brave enough to send her a message and say, will you please be on our podcast? And she was very gracious about taking the time out to to be here today. So her name is Jenny Brown and she, and Jenny is spelled J-E-N-N-I. And she is a managing partner at Brown, Dutton and Kreider Law Firm in the Atlanta area. So she specifically practices out of Marietta, but the work that they do spans the whole area in Georgia. So she has more than 11 years of litigation experience specializing in divorce, modifications, custody cases, and other family law-related matters. And while attending law school, she was awarded a certificate specializing in family law. She was nominated as a Georgia super lawyer in 2017 through 2019. And that's that's a award that's only given to about, it's like fewer than 2.5% of lawyers in the state. So it's definitely, it's reflective of the hard work that she does for families. So currently she's an active member of the Cobb Bar Association and the State Bar of Georgia. And she's married, she's got kids. I mean, she's here to represent her expert opinion regarding how parents, as they're undergoing the custody process, how they can present themselves well in court. So we're going to keep our, even though she's got a ton of information, we're going to keep our interview focused on that particular topic today because I get a lot of questions about it. I've been there. I've been the parent who's had to present themselves well in custody proceedings, and I know how nerve wracking it can be. So thank you, Jenny, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I appreciate the introduction. I'm I'm really happy to be with you today. Well, I do want to say before we even get started that um, I want to make sure people can find you on, on social media. So your Instagram account is Family Law GA. And then you also have an amazing TikTok social media presence, and that's called GA Family Lawyers. 
And then if people want to go to your website, your professional web, website, they can um, find you at gafamilylawyers.com. So there's a lot of ways that people can access information about you and what you do and take advantage of your expertise. So I do encourage our listeners to check that out. Yes. Um, and I'm always happy to answer questions as well. I learn a lot in my practice from answering questions that people have and how to prepare clients as needed. So any questions that people have, they can post them on our social media and I will do a video or we'll write a blog to try to answer those questions the best we can. Fantastic. I love that you can be responsive because man, when somebody's got a question and if they know they can go to a YouTube video or a TikTok and find out some information, at least know where to start. I, I look at all your social media, it comes through my feed regularly. And there's times I kind of feel like I have a lawyer in my pocket because you're giving information that's really timely. So I love that we're going to even delve deeper today into a topic that's super important. Definitely. Okay. So before we get started with the nitty gritty, I do want to ask you, and I ask all my guests this, like what led you down the path of getting into this line of work? Because it definitely is not for the faint of heart. That's a great question. I am a child of divorce. Uh, My parents went through a terrible divorce when I was in fifth grade. And um, I'm also the only girl and I have five brothers. So I come from a very big family. And for me, I knew way too much as a child. And um, I think my parents relied on me a lot. And I really found it important to help families through divorce and realize that they're going to have to deal with each other post-separation. And if I could be a small part in helping them do that, it was really important to me. So it was a really natural thing for me to go into just because of what I went through. And I really never wanted to do anything else. I'm also a mediator and I love that role because I help people craft their future and allow them to do that outside of a courtroom when possible. Well, a lot of that mediation work, and even though I'm not like a, you know, certified mediator, but in the co-parenting counseling relationship, as we're in the room together, you know, those mediation skills, communication skills are so essential. And there's, you know, sometimes as we get closer and closer to a court date, parents get more and more motivated to to sort of be in a space of compromise and recognize like, hey, this might be our last opportunity to have our voices be the loudest voices in the room about our children's well-being and, and you know, schedule and routine and all of that. And so I get to be the one right now, the way my my service is provided, you know, I'm often involved before mediation starts. And by the time they get to the mediation table, we've, you know, ticked off a bunch of topics. And so then by the time mediation starts, they're really working on a much more narrow focus where they're still struggling to come to agreement or they've got, got a court order and there's still places that they need to communicate on and it can't be legislated. And then they're back in my office and I love it. I absolutely agree with you. I, I, when I look at my schedule in a given day and I see I'm working with those co-parents, I'm like, this is a good day, you know? So, and you probably know this. I, and I tell people this all the time. So often people have fundamentally different perceptions on why they are where they are, but at the end of the day, they really want the same thing, but they just can't voice that because of how they got to where they were. Mm -hmm. And so to be the mediator and to be able to go room to room and 
explain that to them and be able to create a settlement agreement for them is a huge blessing for me because in that context, they've got so much more control over their future than you do in a courtroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's get started with some basic information. Like first, define what a custody hearing is. Sure. So when you're going to court for a custody hearing, essentially you're you're going to a courtroom and a judge is going to make a decision on your behalf as it relates to custody. So here in Georgia and and usually across the whole United States, that could be on a temporary basis. So it could be at the very beginning of a case and the court's trying to decide, hey, what are we going to do with this child in the interim? Or it could be on a final basis after the case has been proceeding for a while. But typically at a custody hearing, the judge is going to determine a few things. They're going to determine legal custody, which is just the overall decision-making, and they're going to determine physical custody. And that's going to be, you know, physically who has the child and when. There might be other logistics, depending on the case that they've got to figure out of, you know, do we have to take safety parameters in this case or, you know, drug tests or extracurricular activities. There's lots of little things, but the big umbrella of that is they're going to be deciding legal custody and physical custody on either a temporary basis or a final basis. Now, does in those hearings, typically, do they also address child support or is that often in like a completely separate hearing or does it depend? It's usually goes hand in hand. So if the court's doing something on a temporary basis, they're also going to worry and figure out that temporary support issue or final support issue. All right. So we know what a custody hearing is. And then I would love for you to share from your experience and perspective, like what are some big like do's and don'ts to consider when it comes to like, you're there, it's the day and you're going to be in front of a judge. Like what are some things for people to really be mindful of that they have control over? Um, I think the first is preparation, right? Of thinking, what are the most important things that I need the judge to know? and I tell people this in mediation all the time, but also in preparing for court is the judge has a lot of cases and a small amount of time. So you're going to want to tell the judge your entire background, your entire life, why you got to where you are, right? But what you've got to figure out is what are the most important highlights that they need to know? And usually that comes down to the basic needs of the child and who has been doing those. And a lot of the times people want to take the opportunity to be in court to bash the other parent. And if they're going in with that mindset of this is my day to bash them, you're not going to get what you want out of a custody hearing because it needs to be more focused on the child. Taking it back a step, another important thing just before you even enter the court is your appearance. Because I think people forget that judges are people just like us, right? They have preconceived notions about people. They judge you based on your appearance, even though they, you know, try not to do that. So being professionally dressed and courteous to the court, to their staff goes a long way for the court. Okay. Yeah. I think of times where I've seen parents who have like soaking wet hair or they aren't wearing professional clothes, are carrying a food item or something like that, that I think can present as unprepared. 
yeah, their phone rings numerous times in the courtroom or, you know, after the bailiff has asked for everybody to turn off their phones, or I've had people bring a child to the courtroom that is, you know, two or three and running around the courthouse. And so just the step one is thinking about, you know, what is going to be perceived as you taking this seriously and you are here to protect the best interest of your children or child. And how is someone who does not know you, does not know your circumstance going to perceive what you're doing, how you're acting? Okay. That makes sense. All right. So thinking about, oh, I know I had a question that I've been dying to ask an attorney is, are there certain words that parents can use in testimony that are sort of like red flags? I have some ones in mind, but I'm interested in hearing your perspective. Sure. A huge red flag for me as an attorney, and I know this is a huge flag for judges, is when someone consistently calls the child when they're talking about what they do for the child, my child, right? I always bathe my child. I always feed my child. I'm the one who always takes my child to school. But when they're talking about the other parent or something they don't approve, then saying his child, her child, right? It's so impersonal and it really shows an inability to communicate or have any desire to communicate with each other. And people get into this rhythm of doing that, especially if they have a toxic relationship and they don't even realize that they're doing it, but it's something that is like fingers on a chalkboard for judges and for attorneys. Mm -hmm. I love that. I know that I also hear times where one co-parent will not refer to the other co-parent by name and they'll say the mother, the father, or they'll call them Mr. Like my last name is Egan. So they'll, you know, say, well, as though I'm talking, I'm the parent and they'll say, okay, well, Mr. Egan, you know, has not been picking up the children on time or something like that. And it's, there's this element of, it's very cringe, makes me feel like I'm cringing inside. And it's, I don't know, it's really depersonalizing to say, well, the mother. Yes. Yep. I agree a hundred percent. At the end of the day, you made a child together, right? You're not strangers. Yeah. And so, but when you're treating each other that way, you're showing the court that you don't have a desire to really raise that child together and to do it in a productive manner. I also sometimes, and I know this is probably a little bit more specific to the therapy relationship because, you know, their conversation with me is, is protected. It's confidential, but there are times when I have a parent who talks, they'll use diagnoses about their partner that have not been substantiated by any kind of um, documentation or formal diagnosis by a physician or a mental health therapist. So they'll say, they'll, they'll go into testimony and be like, well, you know, my ex is a narcissist. Oh, And you know, that's, there's, narcissistic personality disorder. That's a clinical term. And unless that's been determined by a qualified person, I find that to be a red flag because if they are kind of operating outside of their lane and giving a diagnosis term like that, especially one that is filled with so much stigma, I think that can present as not being very open-minded towards collaborating. Like this person is incapable of co-parenting with because, you know, they're a narcissist. 
And it's different. If we have somebody who has a diagnosis, it's there's there's been a psychological evaluation, you know, that's on record. The lawyer can submit that. That to me is different than just a parent calling the other person a narcissist and all the stigma that comes with it. That to me feels negative and provoking. I'm not sure that's the, even the right words, but. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that the, the court and the overall legal system is so tired, uh, for lack of a better word, of hearing someone alleging that someone else is a narcissist or before a, the narcissist term was super popular, it was bipolar, right? People just threw that out. And people are so desperate to say those terms in court because they feel like, oh, they're so powerful. But then what they don't remember is that if you're testifying on direct, you're also going to be Mm cross-examined. And on that cross-examination, the attorney is going to, you are going to have to say, well, no, there's no diagnosis. Um, And you're not qualified to make that diagnosis. Well, no. Right. So then it really totally discredits everything that you said, because typically the response to that is, well, I've read books and they check every box. Okay. You're still not qualified to make that determination. So, you know, it really goes in one ear and out the other for the judge. But also, I think that the judges have taken the perception of, I'm actually kind of judging you now that you have decided that with no justifiable reason. And I do think something that's difficult about that is, and I've posted about this on social media. So a lot of the feedback I get from people on this conversation is, well, a narcissist is never going to get tested because they're a narcissist, right? And so there's never going to be this official diagnosis, but it's still not the place of the parent testifying to say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that might, there might be some truth to that. So that gives more credence to bringing it up is probably not going to be appropriate. And there are times in, in my field as therapist, one of the things that is discussed a lot is um, let's say I'm working with a mom and she's telling me, She's recounting information from her marriage, her memories, her experiences. As a therapist, it is not appropriate for me to be like, hey, your ex sounds like a narcissist. And for me to like do some sort of diagnosing of a person that I've never met, have not done an assessment, have not done anything clinically with for me to kind of give that off the cuff diagnosis. Now, sometimes parents will say, I think my ex is a narcissist. And I'll say, hey, you know, what makes you feel that way? And they might share some things that make them feel that way and, you know, put context around it in the therapeutic relationship, not in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can kind of process that together. But therapists who work in this line of work in particular with high conflict people, like, you know, we talk a lot about it's not appropriate to, to diagnose somebody you've never seen and create that dialogue within a parent about their ex-spouse. It's just really unprofessional. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think going back to what you had asked previously about some major do's and don'ts for testimony, I would say, you know, obviously being prepared is the the first step, but the next thing is the way you treat every single person in the courtroom. So, you know, you should be prepared with your attorney and you're going to know generally, or you should know what your attorney is going to be asking you. But it's equally as important to be prepared for that cross-examination. And people think, oh, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get in a battle with this other attorney. I'm going to show them. 
But in doing that, you're really just showing your true self to the court. So it's so important that when you are subject to cross-examination, that you listen to the question that's being asked. And instead of being argumentative, you answer the question and then you'll have the opportunity to explain. But so often people are so defensive about the question because that's the other attorney's job, right? Is to get them in this defensive state is they refuse to answer the question. And then they're really showing the court that what the attorney might be arguing could be true. And so people forget the how important the simplicity of a yes or no answer is before you give your explanation of why it's yes or why it's no. I know as a therapist, you know, because obviously I get cross-examined too. And I do remind myself like this person's doing their job and it's not that it's, it, it, I remind myself, it's actually not personal. Like they're doing a job. Their, their, their role is to do this thing and they would be remiss not to be. And so to recognize, like they're asking a question, my responsibility is to answer it. And I agree. I think that lawyers can do a lot to prepare their, the parents they're working with of like what to expect. And my own lawyer, like from the perspective as a therapist, like I often have my own lawyer to make sure that I'm, my records are being treated appropriately, that my licensure is protected. And she does a great job in making me aware of how I can present information the most helpfully, you know, making sure that I'm attuned to how I can best advocate for my clients. And so hopefully parents are feeling supported by their their lawyer and follow their lawyer's advice. And I tell that to parents at times because they'll ask me a question, you know, as the therapist, like what my perspective is. And I'm always like, follow your lawyer's advice, like do that. Like that's the the best starting point. And then if there's something else that you need to consider, ask a lawyer, your lawyer a question about to get more clarity, great, do that. But there should never be a time that me saying something and passing should be used as a reason to bypass a lawyer's advice. Yes. Yep. And I think something that people don't think about a lot of times in the courtroom is also how you're acting when the other party is testifying. So, you know, I've been in cases before where the husband or the wife is testifying and my client is just huffing and puffing and, you know, might not, you know, the extreme cases are when they actually say something, right? But those other cues that they are giving, uh, the judge sees those, right? So if you don't agree with what they are saying, and you're not going to agree with what they're saying, so be prepared for that, right? Because you're in a courtroom because you don't agree. But write it down for your attorney so that your attorney can cover that in cross-examination. Do what you need to do to keep yourself busy without distracting the court so that you're not huffing and puffing and rolling your eyes and doing those things that you don't realize someone else is watching you and they're judging you even when you're not on the stand. That's a really great point. I love that you brought that up because I've definitely seen that go very well where the person stays really composed. And I've seen it, like you said, where someone's like, oh, come on, that's bullshit. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, oh my goodness, like have that, you know, them be the star up there of their lives. Like you don't need to now deflect it to your like poor emotional regulation. Yes. Hmm, Great advice. Now, when it comes to thinking about 
like the materials, right? Because obviously there's your testimony and then there's the things like documents or photographs and all of that. Like that's something that is coordinated before the hearing, correct? Sometimes, sometimes it's not. So typically parties will exchange some sort of documentation prior to a hearing. Sometimes it's required that it be evidence be submitted before a hearing. And sometimes you have no idea what they're going to have. And so that's why it's so important that you're prepared and that you are truthful, but that you have also been truthful with your attorney before you're walking into the courtroom. I've had cases before where you know my client has demanded a drug test and has jumped up and down and said the other party is using drugs. And I've told them, you know, you're both going to be drug test. If I go in there and I am, you know, having a fit and saying this person is on drugs, the judge is going to drug test both of you that day. And my clients have lied to me and then both failed drug tests in the mm-hmm. courtroom. Right. And so that's an extreme example. But there are so many other examples of, you know, when you're sending your attorney text messages that you want to be used in court, but you're not sharing with them the text messages that are going to be negative against you. And people don't realize that they need to give all all relevant information to their attorney because we need to be prepared for the good and the bad. And the other side is giving those messages where you look terrible, right? But if you're giving that to your attorney in advance, they can be prepared on how to present that in a way that's favorable to you instead of just ignoring the problem and hoping that the other party wasn't prepared enough to have those messages. Yeah, the comment you said about being truthful with your lawyer is really important. Like that means admitting if you made a misstep or something came back around to, to bite you, you know, to, to be upfront. I had a dad that I spoke to recently who was really upfront about being unfaithful in the past and, you know, just stated it matter of factly. And it was something I put into the context of understanding this family dynamic, but um, I definitely appreciated the fact that he was just upfront with that reality and how it was impacting, you know, the conflict between the two of them. And I don't know, it definitely caused me to to feel as though he was really in this co-parenting counseling process to be transparent and mindful about being able to move forward. Yeah. And that's an important, important thing in court too, is, you know, like I said earlier, judges are people and people aren't perfect. And so when you present yourself as a perfect parent and the other parent is the terrible parent, then you're not living in reality. And so to be able to get up there and say, I'm not the perfect parent and I've done X, Y, Z, or, you know, these are my flaws, or I didn't act appropriate in this situation. And I anticipate they're going to bring that up, right? We all as parents, I know I've done this, that something happens and I'm like, man, I could have handled that better in the moment, right? And to be able to acknowledge that is very powerful for the court because judges aren't perfect either. And they know that you're not perfect. So you want to be real in court. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I have to admit, I was a little surprised when you said that there could be evidence that would be unexpected. And I thought that there was a request for discovery and all of that had to be put up front so that the, the both lawyers could prepare based on that information. But you're saying that's not always the case. 
Yeah, it depends on really the finances of the parties and what they could afford to do prior to a hearing and how quickly a hearing is taking place. So if you have a request for an expedited hearing, you wouldn't have exchanged any discovery at that point. If it's a case where parties have really limited funds, the attorneys might not have requested and um, exchanged discovery because that's one of the most expensive parts of a custody case or of a divorce case. So it's not always the case that you're going to walk in knowing exactly what the other party has. Now that you say this, this literally happened the other day with a family I'm working with where one parent was blindsided by information the other parent had, like they didn't know that other parent had had access to it. Mm -hmm. Now that you say that, I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Especially the hearings that take place in a quicker timeline. And we hold back evidence all the time for impeachment purposes. So there might be evidence that we don't submit on purpose. And then there is a question that's asked for the sole purpose of impeaching that witness. And then you don't have to exchange it if you're not going to use it except for the purpose of impeachment. So if they lie on the stand, then you would be submitting something that you weren't planning on submitting. So you're giving them the opportunity to really set themselves up for disaster. And people do it all the time. Yeah, I've felt very protected in that process because, you know, I have very specific data to provide, you know, my, my notes, any information that's come my way, whether it's a parent has emailed me or they sent me a video clip, you know, and all of that is produced well, you know, before the, the hearing that I'm participating in. And then they typically have me just reference things. They'll see like, you know, on page 13 of exhibit A, you know, can you read aloud the, the notation you made from that session? And so, yeah, I'm happy to, I wrote it, you know, so yeah. I don't, I feel pretty protected because there isn't something that wouldn't have been conveyed um, already under the scope of, of accessing my records to the degree that they're asked for. Mm-hmm. And I think that a good tip is that as a witness, you need to assume they have the information that they're asking about. And so, you know, a, a, a simple example I can think of is if you're being cross-examined about taking a parent off a pickup list for school, for example, and they say, isn't it true that you removed them from the school pickup list when you didn't have authority to do that? So often people just say, no, I didn't, even though they know they did. But in the moment, they don't want to admit that they did. Instead of saying, yes, I did. And I was, I did that because he or she had threatened to come and take the kid and not return them. Right. Mm -hmm. And you might have a justified reason that you actually did that. And the court might find that that's a justified reason, but people in the moment, they lie. And then the other, the attorney has the records to show, well, judge, I'm going to use this for the purpose of impeachment. And this witness, you can't believe anything they say, because look, Mm -hmm. here's the records. And they actually did. So you just want to assume that when they're asking a question, a direct question like that, and there is a truth and there is a lie that they probably have the documents that they need to prove one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I'm too scared of authority to ever lie like that. (laughs) I mean, I I know, but people lie all, and I'm sure you've seen this. You've been in courtrooms all the time. Yeah, no, you're right. So a couple more questions, thinking about what are parents as they're going into this process, what should they expect their attorney to be to be doing for them? And what should, what, what should they expect is not going to happen from their attorney? 
I think they should expect to be prepared with their attorney to have a general understanding of what to expect the day of court, of when are they going to testify and who's going to ask them questions and how to act in court, what to be prepared for the good and the bad. I think a lot of the times people want an attorney to tell them what's going to happen in court and they forget that there's no guaranteed outcome. And when you're going before a judge, you're rolling the dice, which is why settlement is so important, right? Because you have a direct control over your future. But when you don't settle, you're putting that control in a third party's hands and they do the best they can with the information they're provided. So setting people up with the expectation that there's not a guarantee. And what we do and what I always want our clients to know is this is best case scenario. This is likely worst case scenario. And this is likely middle of the road. So going in, you have to know that any of those are a possibility. And I think being prepared emotionally that any of those are a possibility is really important. I often help with that behind the scene, you know, like as the therapist, when parents are are fretting or they you know, have been given some indication by their lawyer to adjust to the idea of there being a change that they don't, that they wouldn't prefer. Like on my end, I'm kind of helping them process that of like, okay, let's, let's have this play out to that reality happen happening. You know, the kids might ask you questions about it, or you might get judgmental comments from family members. Like what are some tools you can, you can use to sort of be at peace and know, you know, that you worked really hard for your children and that you have done, you know, the best you can for them. And it still may not result in an outcome that you feel 100% supportive of, but that's going to be your reality. Like, how are we going to manage this, especially in those initial hours and days after a ruling? Because sometimes there's a lot of waiting, you know, where a a hearing will get, you know, initially there was two days allocated for it and then another day gets tacked on or, you know, instead of the the judge giving a ruling right at the end of that second day, you know, they need time to review certain documents and the ruling isn't going to happen until a few days later or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that waiting, I mean, it is, I've, I've been in through my own divorce and I just know, like, I don't think I've ever experienced anything as stressful in my entire life as being a parent going through, you know, an, a, a custody hearing, like, and I think that's why I can go to these hearings now and be so even tempered because like, I have so much compassion for all the parties and I am not in that same space. So, and I can recognize like, I am a more ne- neutral person, like I'm okay. And I can be, you know, a support for these people, but there's a lot of processing that I do behind the scenes to help them get through that. Yeah. And I think understanding realistic expectations is so important. And, you know, it's not just the overarching, am I going to get primary custody? There's so many little things that uh, have to have expectations set. And an easy example I can think of is when a mom might have been raising a child um, primarily on her own and a dad has filed for custody to get visitation. That's very hard for a mom if the dad hasn't been involved. And a lot of the times we have a situation where the mom wants to control exactly what happens at dad's house 
what the kid eats, what time the kid goes to sleep, you know, what brand car seat I've had arguments Mm -hmm. over what brand car seat this child's going to, to be in and setting the expectation that the judge is not going to control the child on either parent's time if the child is safe. And so letting your client know that you're going to have to release some of that control because the judge is not going to do that. The judge is not going to set a bedtime at both parties' house. The judge is not going to say the child can have sugar here, but not sugar here. And so really releasing some of that control. And a lot of the times that's us sending our client to a a counselor, Mm -hmm. you know, in the midst of this situation of saying like, look, you need to go and speak with someone that is going to help you process some of this. Absolutely. I mean, that's once again, kind of where my role can be as far as like that parent being able to manage the fact that they don't have control and them hearing Hey, I, you know, one of the things I say to parents is like, it's really important to me that both of you have parental autonomy to the appropriate degree. Like you now have two homes, you have, you know, your own individual relationship with the child or the, or the children, you have a family culture or home culture that you are fostering and it may look different than your co-parent and that's okay. And if there is a place where we really need there to be solid overlap and a, a simple example I give is, you know, giving medication. This, mm-hmm. you know, every day or, or for some, depending on the medication, maybe the same time every day. Yeah. And so like, okay, we don't, we're, we don't have a lot of wiggle room for family culture in medication distribution. But if at your house, you go and do your 30 minutes of reading with your child, when you first get home from school and another parent does it where they do it before bedtime, like we're not talking about we need to get on the same page because there's a mixed message to the children. Both of you are providing a consistent message to the children that they need to do their homework. But I know when I say this from experience, like I was the parent who was super patient at 4.30, but at eight, you know, listening to a first grader excruciatingly go through each word of a book, I cannot think of any worst thing to be doing at 8 p.m. And so you know, for a judge to legislate that, or for me as the co-parenting therapist, or, you know, in my role as parent coordinator to legislate that, like that's not going to happen. And so sometimes they need to kind of hear what is an appropriate thing to get on the same page about and what you got to let go. Yes. (laughs) Well, this has been really helpful. I want to make sure that we're not overburdening our audience with just detail after detail, but so a question I also like to ask attorneys when I have them on the podcast is as a, as a therapist, what can we do like from your perspective as the attorney to support these clients and to support the work that you're doing? Because at the end of the day, you're in the courtroom with the judge trying to get a final ruling so this family can hopefully get some peace. What are things that therapists do that muddies the water or facilitates the situation? That's a great question. And I wish people would ask that more often. Um, I think the worst thing that I have seen that a therapist does is becomes a full cheerleader for their client with no ability to maybe discuss the other party's position, right? Of asking questions of, okay, well, how could how could the other party be perceiving this exact issue? And so just taking their side and fueling the, the fire of, oh, I get why you feel that way. That's totally justified and not playing any of the uh, devil's advocate role. 
with them to work through that. Um, and that's a problem in litigation. That's a problem when the counselor testifies, right? And they admit that, no, they've never spoken to the other party. They've never spoken to anyone, you know, connected to the other party, but they feel like, well, but that's not my job. My job is to support him or her solely. Mm. So that's a major issue and not helpful, um, especially when parties are trying to get to a different point in their life and more positive point. I think on the flip side of that, one of the best things is to be able to try to get people to see something from another point of view and discuss how you can move forward and not sit so heavily in the past. And that's huge for people because your normal is going to look different. A lot of the times people file for divorce and they think they're just going to get rid of the person and nothing in their life changes. So setting that expectation of your normal isn't the same anymore. And so how can we be okay? And how can we set that new normal moving forward for you and for the kids? Because at the end of the day, when you're done with the divorce, when you're done with the custody case, the lawyers leave, right? They go on to their other case, but the parents are still there and the parents still have to deal with each other and be able to, you know, find a way to work together. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. And the work I do is in the cases that I'm actually involved in doing something with the court is I'm usually the co-parenting therapist. So I've had contact with both parents and we are working as a team. I don't think I've ever been called in to testify for as an individual therapist of let's just, just say the mom, like, you know, typically that wouldn't be a role I would take. There are times I'm the therapist for the children and I'm not doing co-parenting counseling specifically, and I'm working with a child or the children. And, you know, we're talking about child's performance in school. Are they demonstrating mental health symptoms? Are they, you know, engaging in cutting behavior? Have they run away? Have they refused to engage in visitations? Are they having unrestricted access to the internet and have indicated to me that they are, you know, spending a lot of time looking at pornography. Like, you know, there are times when I'm involved in that my client is the child. Mm -hmm. It's not either parent. And then when it comes to co-parenting, you know, I'm working with both parents and, you know, that co-parenting unit is kind of the collective client. And there could have been recommendations that I gave that is not middle of the road. Like I might say, well, you know, you're letting four-year-olds stay up till 11 and we're seeing a kid who won't get up and go to daycare the next day or is crying every day at drop-off and is spending the first two hours of his daycare experience tearful and fretful and the and the daycare staff is having to carry him around and all of that. And I can make a you know pretty decisive recommendation of more appropriate bedtime. And then there's data to collect like, hey, let's have the daycare keep some data on whether or not this child is falling asleep during morning reading time or is coming in really fretful or it it doesn't have a diaper change or whatever. There's some data points that we can look at, you know, so in those situations, there's times where I'm giving a recommendation that is in line with what one of the parents says, but as a collective unit, they're my client. Right. And because you, and you have the information from both sides to be able to do Mm -hmm. that, which is so helpful. And that's why overall co-parenting counseling is great because that person does get that full picture versus having one therapist come in that's only talked to the you know mom and then another therapist that's only talked to the dad and then a therapist that's seen the child that's only talked to mom so only has mom's perception on this child mm-hmm. which is 
wholly unhelpful, but people yes. do it all of the time where, especially when it's related to a child, the therapist comes in and has all of this testimony, but they've only talked to one parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I document all the attempts that were made to communicate. And I don't see a child without having both, assuming both parents have custody time, right? Sure. But they have to both give consent. And there's some parents who will say, I will give consent, but I'm not planning to be involved in the process. And then of course, I'm just documenting that that was their assertion. And then there's other times where, and I've seen this where therapists aren't doing enough reaching out to the co-parent and it's like, well, maybe they live out of state or maybe they only see the children on the weekends. And so, and you know, for me, there's sort of a discussion point. Can there be an opportunity for the parent who sees the child on the weekends to have them for two hours on the random Tuesday that we have an appointment so that I can have some parenting time? Or can they set up a parenting appointment, a parent session with me so that I can get their perspective and hear their concerns? And so, you know, I document all those attempts to make sure that that parent feels included in the process and some some decline and that's okay. But I certainly don't want it to ever be presented or or there to be any suggestion that I kind of cut out a parent, even if they're unpleasant, you know, I mean. And sometimes they are. Yeah. 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 Well, I could talk to you all day. I think this is such a great topic and I so appreciate your time. And I think our listeners are really going to benefit from your expertise. And I do want to reiterate to our audience how they can find you again, just in case somebody's lost that information in the the process of the beginning part of the podcast. So to go to your website, um, they can go to gafamilylawyers.com and you are, you know, a practicing attorney, family law and family law in the state of Georgia. You also have your Instagram, which is family law GA. And then you have your TikTok account, which is GA family lawyers. And so there's three ways right there that people can access your expertise as well as listening to this podcast. So I do encourage people out there to, like you said in the beginning, if you have a question, leave it in the comments on one of the social media outlets, because it could be something that Jenny addresses in a future social media post. Yes. Yep. And if you want to post a question anonymously, just, you know, say this is an anonymous question and then we'll just do a video and won't tag anybody, but happy to answer any questions that people have. It's really helpful for me as an attorney on what I need to educate my clients for as well. So I really appreciate you having me here and have enjoyed the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. And to all our listeners out there, we appreciate you being back for the season six premiere episode. As always, please visit our website at www.egancounseling.com if you'd like to find out more about our services or if you'd like to easily access the other podcast episodes. Like I said, we're up to over 100 episodes now. We've been doing this for over two years, and we really hope that we are a fantastic parenting resource for you. And like Jenny was saying, if there's a topic that you feel would be helpful for us to cover let us know because we're always interested in making sure that our episodes cater to the needs of the of the parents and families who, who listen in. So once again, I appreciate you being here. Come back again. <laughs>